Today on the Matt Wall Show, the leading transgender health organization in the world has finally released its new guidelines recommending medical and surgical transition for kids, also recommending that in some cases they go around the parents if parents aren't affirming enough. Parental consent is now optional, says WPATH. Also, in one of the best stories of the year, Governor Ron DeSantis ships plane loads of illegals to the sanctuary city of Martha's Vineyard. We'll find out uh, how this is just like the Holocaust, according to the left. And the Treasury Secretary says that the IRS is the foundation of our country. In our daily cancellation, a fat activist on Twitter, Twitter says that she's only fat because of white people. How does she connect those dots? We'll find out about that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show. The Biden administration has recently announced its plan to hire 87,000 new IRS agents in 2023, many of whom will be bearing arms as they hunt for your money. So you need to secure your savings in a tax-sheltered account now, and Birch Gold can help you do just that. Birch Gold Group helps you hold uh, gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account to protect you from big government tyranny. Plus, throughout history, gold has always been your best hedge against inflation. Diversified savings can protect you from downturns in the market. If you have a 401k or IRA that's underperforming, just text Walsh to 989898 and you can convert that into an IRA in precious metals right now. Birch Gold Group has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and they also have thousands of satisfied customers. You can just listen to what the customers have to say, and you know you'll be in good, in good hands. Text Walsh to 989898, and Birch Gold will send you a free info kit on diversifying into gold tax-free. Take the necessary steps to hedge against inflation today and protect your hard-earned money. Get your free info kit by texting Walsh to 989898 now. There is no good reason why the opinions and proclamations of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, should matter at all to anyone. The organization was founded in the late 1970s, not by a medical doctor, but by a social social psychologist named Paul Allen Walker. Uh, Walker worked with John Money, who, as you know, if you heard on this show, is the depraved quack who performed sexual experiments on young boys, causing two of his test subjects to kill themselves. Uh, Walker, for his part, who was openly gay, lived in the Castro District in San Francisco, set up his practice in the same city where he helped facilitate sex change surgeries back like in the 60s and 70s. He also had a treatment center, quote unquote, for sex offenders. But Walker never met someone who wouldn't be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, according to him. I mean, he would just diagnose anyone. For example, Walt Heyer, who's a man who detransitioned back in the early 90s and has been speaking out against the gender ideology industry ever since, he tells the story of his initial consultations with Walker in 1981. Now, Heyer was abused by his grandmother as a very young boy. Uh, If you've heard his story before, you're familiar with it. But um, he was, just to, to summarize very briefly, he was forced to dress in girl clothing as like a four-year-old child by his, by his uh, grandmother. And to use the current phrase, in other words, he was sort of socially transitioned into a girl against his will, just because his grandmother was a, a, an abusive psychopath. Now, in his 40s, Heyer became a patient of Walker and explained this history of childhood abuse and trauma to him. But he was immediately diagnosed with gender dysphoria anyway and recommended for hormones and surgery. So to be clear, Walker's recommendation was that Heyer should use drugs and surgery to affirm the false identity that his insane, abusive grandmother created for him when he was four years old. That's the kind of mental health professional that Walker, the founder of WPATH, was. 
Eventually, he died of AIDS, and the leadership of WPATH was passed on to somebody else, which brings us to today. Today, the president of the organization is a man named Walter Pierre Bowman, who is a sexologist and quote-unquote trans health specialist. He's on his way out, though, apparently, and the president-elect of the organization is Marcy Bowers, who's the trans uh, sex change surgeon featured in my film, What is a Woman? The organization's treasurer is a guy named Lauren Schechter, who's a plastic surgeon from Chicago and who also performs gender transitions on uh, adults and children. In fact, all the way down the line, from president on down, in this organization, you find people who are not only totally ideologically invested in the trans agenda and therefore untrustworthy sources of information, but even worse, they are financially invested. Bowers, Schechter, many of the rest in leadership and on the board all have made millions of dollars from the gender affirmation business. So now they're in charge of WPATH, and the more that WPATH relaxes their recommendations and guidelines and sort of opens things up, and uh, the more of the population that they can include as potential patients and as potential candidates for uh, gender affirmation procedures, quote-unquote, the more money they personally make. This is a conflict of interest, to say the least. And yet, it has not stopped WPATH from becoming the leading authority on trans health in the world. Not according to me, anyway, but according to uh, all the you know, major medical institutions and organizations. It shouldn't matter what they say or what they recommend, but it does. Because whatever they declare is uncritically adopted by every other major medical organization in the Western world, which is what makes their highly anticipated set of new guidelines just released this week, unfortunately, relevant. Christina Buttons, who's our new and uh, quite fearless reporter at The Daily Wire, reports this. Quote, um, the, the leading transgender health association has released its much-anticipated new guidelines. One aspect noticeably different from previous editions is that the explicitly stated minimal age recommendations for minors to, have, to obtain puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries have been removed. Now, to uh, state the obvious here, or to restate, that means that there is now no official minimum age recommendation for any gender transition procedure. So, continuing. The new guidance also suggests that if parents do not affirm their child's newly chosen identity, the state may be enabled to intervene in order to assist with the child's transition. WPATH published its Standards of Care 8th edition in the International Journal of Transgender Health on September 6, 2022. A correction was published in the same journal on September 15th, which removed sections pertaining to, quote, minimal ages for gender-affirming medical and surgical treatments for adolescents, a confidential draft of the 8th edition was released for public review in December 2021 that lowered the recommended minimum age for minors to obtain cross-sex hormones, which caused permanent changes to the body, from 16 to 14. And then also irreversible chest, face, and genital surgeries to 15, 16, and 17, respectively. Little has changed from the early draft, and while WPATH no longer provides explicit minimum age recommendations in their latest official guidelines, a close reading of the text finds that age suggestions uh, are woven into the text. So, before I read a little bit more of this, there are basically two ways to potentially interpret WPATH's decision to remove the explicit minimum age recommendations from the text. One is that 
they don't want there to be any minimum age. You know, they want to open the door for any procedure at any age. We heard from a gender surgeon in a clip last week that uh, he doesn't recognize any minimum age at all for any form of medical intervention. We heard that explicitly. Or you might theorize that WPATH removed some of these minimum age guidelines, or at least made them harder to find in the text, um, made them a little bit less clear, because they don't want people to know that these things are being done to kids as young as 14. I mean, they've been talking openly about doing these things to kids for many years, but now some of us are paying attention and drawing attention to it, and they don't want that, which is the same reason why children's hospitals and other clinics around the country have been frantically removing this information from their website. Any mention of performing any sort of procedures on kids that are removing from the website, not because they don't do it anymore, but because they don't want us to notice it. They don't want to give us something really simple that we can point to and say, oh, you see? They're trying to make it harder to, for critics to expose what's going on rather than laying it all out plainly in a document that we can, again, just point to and say, well, there it is. Now, I tend to think that out of these two possible explanations, maybe there's truth to both. Reading on. Uh, chapter 6 on adolescence in the new guidelines suggests that cross-sex hormones may be administered to children as young as 14. Quoting from the document, it says, More recent guidelines suggest there may be compelling reasons to initiate um, gender-affirming hormone therapy prior to the age of 16, although there are limited studies on youth who have initiated hormones prior to 14 years of age. In the same chapter, so you see how they, they have the ages there. They make it a little bit more obscure what they're actually saying, a little bit more. In the same chapter, guidance is issued for chest masculinization surgery, otherwise known as a double mastectomy, which is the removal of healthy breasts. Quoting again from the document, it says, chest masculinization surgery can be considered in minors when clinically and developmentally appropriate as determined by a multidisciplinary team experienced in adolescent and gender development. Though no precise age is indicated, most pediatric gender clinics will perform double mastectomy surgeries on 15-year-olds. Uh, Guidance on vaginoplasties, the creation of a pseudo-vagina using existing genital tissue, indicates that they may be obtained as a minor as well. Quoting again from the document, while the sample sizes are small, these studies suggest there may be a benefit for some adolescents to having these procedures performed before the age of 18, reads the guidelines. Now, keep in mind again that younger children um, undergoing gender transition means millions of more dollars in the pockets of the very people who are making these recommendations. Now, uh, we should know that WPATH does at least have one form of genital mutilation, which it uh, does not yet recommend for kids. Quote, the only genital surgery it seems the WPATH is comfortable setting an age recommendation for is phalloplasty, which creates a penis-like phallus from skin grafts taken elsewhere in the body. They, the document says, given the complexity of phalloplasty and current high rates of complications in comparison to other gender-affirming surgical treatments, it is not recommended that this surgery be considered in youth under 18 at this time. The at this time qualifier is rather glaring and conspicuous. And so is this part. Reading from the document. We recommend when gender-affirming medical or surgical treatments are indicated for adolescents, healthcare professionals working with transgender and gender-diverse adolescents involve parents or guardians in the assessment and treatment process, unless their involvement is determined to be harmful to the adolescent or not feasible. Helping youth and parents slash caregivers work together on important gender care decisions is a primary goal. However, in some cases, parents and caregivers 
may be too rejecting of their adolescent child and their child's gender needs to be part of the clinical evaluation process. In these situations, youth may require the engagement of larger systems of advocacy and support to move forward with the necessary support and care. Um, now, this statement from WPATH will be and has been reported as WPATH recommending parental consent. Oh, they're being responsible. They're saying that there should be parental consent. But they're actually doing the opposite, which is quite obvious when you read it. What they're saying is that parental consent matters if the parent says yes. If the parent says no, their opinion doesn't matter. So you only get consent if the consent, if, you, if there is consent. Look, consent only matters if you say yes. Which is to say that your consent doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter at all in either case. The medical establishment is saying to the parents here, we're going to do what we want to your kids, and we'll get the state involved if we have to. And uh, you can give us your approval and we'll do it, or you can disapprove and we'll still do it. What this means is that the approval is irrelevant and symbolic at best. The parents are cut out of the equation, and consent is deferred not to the child, who cannot actually consent, but to the very surgeons and doctors who are financially invested in transitioning as many people as they can, as young as they can, and as fast as they can. That's what so much of this is about. Now, we know that they are um, rabid ideologues that are in the gender transition industry, and they're at WPATH, and they're, as I said, ideologically invested in this. Um, they're, they're religious fanatics, and they want to induct as many people as they can into their cult, and that's what's driving a lot of it. But we can't overlook the fact that they're also just scam artists trying to make a buck or two or two billion. That's what much of this traces back to. Let's get to our five headlines. But we know the left has proclaimed an all-out war on childhood. Having a will in place is the least you can do to protect your kids, although there's so much more you could do. You could start here. A will gives you the power to decide who will raise your kids should something happen to you and your spouse. Without one, the state decides, and you don't want that to happen. A will is about protecting your legacy, protecting your finances, protecting your children, ensuring that your medical decisions are honored when you're unable to see them through, deciding who will take on the responsibility of raising your children or caring for a parent or a grandparent. A will may be your only opportunity to direct important family heirlooms, financial investments, and responsibilities to the proper people in your life. Plus, it's incredibly easy and affordable with Epic Will. Epic Will bundles your last will, living will, healthcare power of attorney, HIPAA release, and durable financial power of attorney all into one. It only costs $119 for a single person to create a will. And when you use promo code Walsh, you'll save 10% as well. Go to epicwill.com, use promo code Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. You got to do it now. Don't wait. That's epicwill.com, promo code Walsh. This is uh, one of my favorite stories of the year, potentially of all time. We've heard about Republican governors sending busloads of illegals to Chicago and New York and other places. Well, Ron DeSantis, I think, tops them all with this, as you've probably heard. Daily Wire, the, uh, the far left melted down Wednesday night in response to Governor Ron DeSantis sending two planefuls of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, a Massachusetts island that is home to wealthy progressives like President Barack Obama. Uh, the uh, office, DeSantis' office said in a statement, Yes, Florida can confirm the two planes with illegal immigrants that arrived in Martha's Vineyard today were part of the state's relocation program to transport illegal immigrants to sanctuary destinations. States like Massachusetts, 
New York and California will better facilitate the care of these individuals who they have invited into our country by incentivizing illegal immigration through their designation as sanctuary states and support for the Biden administration's open border policies. You know, this is, uh, this is something that, you know, you think the left would support, especially if they declared themselves sanctuary states. And also, they would be the first to say that, I mean, Ron DeSantis is a, he's a, he's a fascist. He's Hitler incarnate. In fact, they do say that. We'll get to that in a second. But, and, and, and Florida's a, you know, a, a hellhole. You don't want to live there. There's no, it, 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 don't say gay. You can't even say the word gay when you're walking down the street or a, a drone will come by and incinerate you. That's how bad it is there. Texas is even worse. So you think they would be quite excited about these illegal immigrants being relocated from those terrible, terrible states and brought to places that have declared themselves to be sanctuaries. I mean, they say we are a sanctuary, come to us. And then as it turns out, when uh, the Republicans, governors take them up on that and say, okay, well, here you go. Here's, here, here's some people for your sanctuary. Well, it's a, no, that's not, not, well, we didn't mean, I mean we meant, uh, you know, spiritually. We're spiritual. We're here for moral support from a distance. You know, we'll give a thumbs up from a That's what we wanted to do. That's what we meant by sanctuary state. Um, leftists proceeded to erupt with anger that DeSantis would send the illegal immigrants to the island with many falsely accusing him of human trafficking or being a literal Nazi. Former CNN reporter Jackie uh, Schechner says the Nazis had a relocation program. DeSantis' communications director actually uses the word the state's relocation program. Oh, <laughs> well, the Nazis relocated people, and this is also being called relocation. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, I, when, uh, when the Daily Wire moved to Tennessee from, from Los Angeles, I was living in Pennsylvania at the time. And uh, they wanted me to relocate here to Nashville, you know. And um, so I, I am also, you know, I, I am essentially the victim of the Holocaust now because of that, because it's relocation. Well, no, obviously, see, when the Nazis relocated people, um, they were relocating Jews to ghettos. And then eventually they were being relocated, quote unquote, to concentration camps where they were uh, slaughtered. In this case, we have illegal immigrants being put on a nice jet and brought to the wealthiest and nicest neighborhood in the country. Um, Where, again, they have been told that that we're a sanctuary. This Nazi comparison has come up more than once, not surprisingly. Here's um, a conversation with the documentarian Ken Burns, who's just making it, it's kind of a, it's a, Make it a bad, bad name for all the rest of us documentarians in the documentarian uh, community. But anyway, he, he, here he is talking about this uh, connection between Ron DeSantis and Hitler. This is history. All of your documentaries are about history. Yeah. But all of them also make you think about where we are exactly. now. And we woke up to the news this morning that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida sent two plane loads of migrants uh, to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts, including kids and whatnot. And I'm not saying this is not a one-for-one. One. This is not a parallel here in any way. But it does address some of the same themes that are part of this documentary. Well, Ken, it's I wonder if the you abstraction of human life. It's basically saying that you can use a human life that is as valuable as yours or mine or Lynn's 
and to put it in a position of becoming a political pawn in somebody's authoritarian game. This is the uh, coming straight out of the authoritarian playbook. This is what's so uh, disturbing about DeSantis, is to use human beings, to weaponize human beings for a political purpose. It's like when somebody disagrees with him in Florida, like the Walt Disney Company, he punishes them. This is not the actions of a person participating in a democratic process in which there's an exchange of ideas. This is about punishing political enemies, putting on uh, shows, political shows, political theater. And in this case, this is with the lives of human beings. And what's so ironic is these are Venezuelan refugees, which DeSantis should be supporting because they're trying to flee the, the corruption of a left-wing government and all of the pain there. And so the, the, the level of cynicism is beyond that. And, and what we find in all our films is that the themes that we engage in the past are present That's good enough. Shut up, Ken. We got it. Um, uh, where to even begin? Okay, even if it was true that Ron DeSantis is using the illegal immigrants as, quote, political pawns, which to, to accuse him of that is to admit that the whole sanctuary state thing was, was, was you know, a mirage. It was not serious. I mean, they're, they're, this is a, they're only political pawns if, there's, if the sanctuary state, because that's, that's he's sending them to a sanctuary state. So what they're saying is that, yeah, he's, he is calling... Um, you know, the, the bluff of, uh, you know, Massachusetts, New York, that's what these Republican governors are doing. They're, they're calling the bluff of these other states who claim to be sanctuary states. Um, but they're not admitting that explicitly. But even if, if, if that's true, like they're using them as political pawns. Is that what the, that's what the Holocaust was? That's what the Holocaust was all about, was using what Jews as political pawns. That's it. No, I think the issue with the Holocaust was the mass murder. Okay, so it's, it's, it's something quite beyond being used as a political pawn. Mass, mass slaughter was the issue there. And he also mentions the abstraction of human life, which is a good phrase, actually. It's a useful phrase. Uh, and that is happening in our culture. But who's doing that exactly? The abstraction of human life. What does that mean? I guess it means making human life abstract. Um kind of obscuring it, making it this kind of abstract concept. Well, where is that going on? I mean, that's, that's going on with, in the womb. That's the pro-abortion side. That's the left, as always. As always, when they accuse someone of doing something, it's because they themselves are doing it every single time. It's like 100% of the time that's the case. Certainly the case here. That's exactly what they're doing here. They are the ones who say, well, I don't know, when does human life begin? And nobody knows. We can't even define it. You know, we know we can stump them with what is a woman. You could also stump them by asking what is human life. They can't define it. They won't define it. So who's, who, who's engaging in the abstraction here? We're not making human life abstract. We, we can give you a definition. We tell you exactly what it is and when it starts. The White House also was... Uh, on the scene to denounce this unethical move by Ron DeSantis. Let's listen to that. On what you call this political stunt with the asylum seekers. Let's specifically get into the locations. Martha's Vineyard, the Naval Observatory. Can you talk to the issue of, you said Boston. <laughs> it's an island that they sent mm -hmm. the asylum seekers to. An island that um, is known to be in some instances, a democratic haven. 
uh, former presidents, former Democratic presidents, vacation there, own homes there, etc. Could you speak to that as well as the Naval Observatory? What I could say, and I've been very clear, uh, it is a political stunt. That's what we're seeing from governor, uh, governors, Republican governors in, in particular. And um, it is a cruel, inhumane way of treating uh, people who are fleeing communism, uh, people who are, who are uh, and we're not just talking about people, we're talking about children, we're talking about families uh, who are promised uh, a home, promised a job, put on a bus, and, uh, you know, driven to a place that they do not know. And it is a cruel thing to do. According to local reports, Governor Ron DeSantis sent a hired videographer on the plane to Massachusetts uh, to order to capture footage of them being dropped off. Remember, there were children on this plane. So I cannot speak to uh, anything outside of what we're seeing, right? Which is I. I you know, I, I'll take that inhumane treatment, a, a free private jet ride to Martha's Vineyard. You know, I'll, I'll take that. Um, being used as a political pawn, she says that, oh, they're being put on buses and shipped to a place they don't know. Yeah, what does that remind you of? I mean, it reminds you of the, of the illegal immigration epidemic that's been ongoing for decades. That's exactly the problem. That's what these, these uh, governors, you know, in border states and governors down south have been saying, what conservatives in general have been saying for years. Is that when you open up the border and you invite people in and you start talking about how you're a sanctuary city, a sanctuary state, whatever, this is what you end up with. So once again, accusing people of doing exactly what they're doing, they're the ones who have for decades been using illegal immigrants as political pawns, um, inviting them in to these red states. They don't want to have to deal with them themselves, but invite them into the red states. But what, they're, what they're actually having a problem with, what they're really saying is, well, how dare you use illegal immigrants as political pawns? Only we're supposed to do that. We're the ones that are, that, that's our thing, not yours. It's like a form of plagiarism, essentially, is what they're accusing Ron DeSantis of. But really, it's the reaction from some of the local leaders themselves that's really telling. Here's the um, homeless shelter coordinator in Martha's Vineyard, and here's what she had to say about this. So, what are the most difficult challenges right now? The difficult challenges are uh, we have, at some point in time, they have to move to somewhere else, right? We, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants, um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island, and so we, we don't, we can't house everyone here that lives here and works here. We don't have housing for 50 more people. Eventually, we have to pick them up and move them somewhere else. We can't take care of them here. We don't have housing. It's a crisis. So, so uh, 50 illegal immigrants in Martha's Vineyard is a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, which they've been calling it, a humanitarian crisis. But what is thousands of illegal immigrants every single day being funneled into these border towns and border states? What do you call that? Um, what we should see, again, the left, the left likes diversity in theory, but they certainly don't want to have to actually confront it in reality. And this also goes to show that the most compassionate and humane border policy is one that deters people from coming here to begin with. Because once you have the flood of illegal immigrants coming into the country, there are no good answers. When they're here, there's no good answers. And when you have this unchecked tide coming in every single day, there are no good answers. Um, 
there are right answers, but there aren't any, like, no matter, every answer is difficult. And the only way to stop that is to deter people from coming here in the first place. Yeah, it's not shipping them off. It'd be better if, if uh, Ron DeSantis didn't have to do that. It'd be better if Greg Abbott didn't have to ship illegals up to sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. That'd be better. But they're here because the border's not secure. So why can't we all agree that, that actually the best thing is for them not to come to begin with? And how do you stop them from coming? Well, you secure the border, border obviously. But it also means that, you again, you have to have a, a policy that deters people from coming, which means when they come, you, know, you, you have to be very strict and even seemingly unkind. Like you come here, you shut the border down, people come, doesn't matter how far they've been traveling, you turn them around and say, you can't come in here, go away. It seems really upsetting to people, and it does seem unkind and uncharitable, but that is actually the most charitable and compassionate thing. If you want to avoid this humanitarian crisis in Martha's Vineyard, which is the only place the left cares about it, if it's in Martha's Vineyard, they care about it. They don't care about the humanitarian crisis that's been ongoing for decades in Texas. If you really want to avoid a, a humanitarian crisis, then that's what you do. You shut the border down, and you are strict about it and unwavering, and you're not allowed to come here illegally. If you come here, we will send you away, and that's it. All right, Don Lemon uh, has been demoted, essentially. Uh, Not essentially. I mean, he's been, we know that um, at CNN, they're kind of scrambling and trying to figure out what's wrong with uh, their ratings. I mean, what's wrong with the ratings is nobody wants to watch CNN. So um, they got, we know they got rid of Brian Stelter. They got rid of uh, Chris Cuomo a while ago, and they're revamping their primetime lineup. They're taking Don Lemon and they're kicking him down to the morning show and they're demoting him. They're taking him out of primetime, putting him somewhere that's not primetime. But um, this is kind of embarrassing for him. He, uh, rather than just kind of going quietly on his show last night, he's defending himself. And we just talked about the problem of like getting defensive. He's defending himself against the claim that he was demoted. And uh, here's how that went. I was presented with an opportunity that I can't pass up at this network and we have a new boss who um is a morning show impresario and he wants a morning show that will kick off the editorial direction of the network every single day and i am honored that he asked me to do it and for all of those who are out there saying oh he moved me and without my he asked me and i said yes i could have said no this is my show i have a contract for this show I decided that I would take him up on that and take this journey with him. So this is not someone moving me. And by the way, this is not someone saying, you must move to the right, Don Lemon. You must not be so, um, give so much of your perspective. None of that has happened. All of that is fodder for Twitter, which is not real. So stop it. I was not demoted. None of that. This is an opportunity. This is a promotion. This is, this is, um, an opportunity for me to create something around me, and I get to work with two great ladies who you know, Poppy Harlow, who I've known for more than a decade. I went to her wedding in Slovenia. I know her children. I know her husband. And Caitlin Collins, uh, same thing. We've been friends since Caitlin has been at the network. This, I was not demoted. I wasn't. Uh, I love the phrase there. I, I, I decided to take this journey with him. So your boss calls you in. And says, uh, yeah, we're kicking you down a few notches here. You're not, you're not performing well. You know, we're going to give you a pay cut, a demotion. Okay, I'll take this journey with you. Let's go hand in hand on this journey. 
Um, first of all, nobody volunteers for to do the morning show, especially not from prime time. Like you're gonna, you really, you want to get up at three thirty in the morning and do and do a show. It's what you really want instead of being in prime time. I doubt it. But you also notice he his his near admission of bias. Not that we need him to admit it. We already know, but he almost admits it. He says, um, he says, oh no, it's it's it. They they didn't come to me and say move to the right, stop being, and then he stops himself. Uh, you know, stop giving my perspective. So he almost said, they didn't tell me move to the right, stop being so liberal. And then he stopped himself. Again, not that we needed his admission, but even so. All right, maybe uh, let's play one other clip. This is the uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen waxing poetically about the IRS. Today, I want to spend some time discussing how the new IRS funding in the Inflation Reduction Act will make these types of investments possible, as well as its impact on the American economy. But first, I want to begin by speaking about the IRS itself. As our nation's revenue collection agency, the IRS is a foundation of our government and our society. The IRS collects 96% of the revenue that funds the federal government, that supports our priorities from national security to infrastructure to social security. It's also one of the very few parts of the federal government that touches nearly every American household. IRS employees are known for their extraordinary dedication to public service. They have always served with distinction. But over the past couple of years, the employees of the IRS have been called to step further to serve the American people. Serve the American people with audits. So we're getting served with. By the way, I don't mean this in a bad way. I really don't. And I don't mean this as an insult. But um, every time I see Janet Yellen, doesn't she look a little bit like the albino who works in the torture chamber in The Princess Bride? Uh, we could put up a split screen maybe of that. I don't know. I, you know, it's, Again, it's not, it's quite a handsome guy. So I'm not, I don't mean that as an insult. I just, I don't know if they found that. It would make sense to find that person who works in a torture chamber. Um, what do they call that in the, in the film? The Pit of Despair. So put that person who runs Pit of Despair, runs the IRS. You know, there is a connection there. Anyway, um, the IRS is the foundation of the United States. Uh, you, you laugh at that, but it's actually, it's just an outrageous claim. And it's another, although it's an overused term, it's quite Orwellian, this rewrite of history. If, I mean, America was founded on a, on a, on a tax revolt I mean, it was it was founded by people who revolted, rebelled, would, would, would started killing people because of taxes, and so now, the foundation of the country is the the revenue collection agency, which, by the way, didn't even exist um, for the first century plus of the of the of the country's existence, and now they, it serves as our foundation. Which there's a lot of truth to that from her perspective, from the from the perspective of the powers that be here, the regime. That is how they see it. 
the IRS is, is utterly foundational, which uh, probably tells you everything you need to know. Let's get now to the comment section. Who's bringing shopping cards back to the rightful place? We're becoming saints here in the sweet baby gang. Uh, you know, one of the great things about being a parent is that it provides you with many occasions to learn empathy. And I, I need a lot of practice in that regard, as you know, so it's a good thing. And, um, and, and the reason is that your children will get upset about the dumbest things all the time. And this, this, this holds true at every age, by the way, every stage of childhood. And your job is to try to understand where they're coming from and to not be dismissive. Because, yeah, you don't want to, uh, if, if, they're, if they're overreacting to something, you don't want to encourage it. But at the same time, you can't always be dismissive. And you have to try to sort of understand where they're coming from. So last night, uh, I put the kids down for bed. And I went upstairs about 30 minutes later. And my son, uh, my five-year-old, is sitting in his bed sobbing uncontrollably. And I go in and ask him, what's wrong? And he says that he's scared. And I ask him why that he, he's scared. And he says he's scared because his toys come to life at night while he's sleeping. And he's worried about that. Which admittedly, I mean, I would be worried about that too if that was happening. But I tried to explain to him it's not happening. Um, toys don't actually come to life. That's just from the movies and TV shows. It's not real. It's not physically possible. But I made it worse because at one point he says, well, I know the toys, when they come to life, they can't touch humans. They can't attack humans. But it's, it's still scary. That's what he said to me. My son, by the way, never uses the word person or people. He only ever says humans for some reason. So if we're in the mall or something and, and there's a lot of people there, he'll say, he'll say, uh, there are a lot of humans in here. Or did you see that human driving that car? And I, it makes sense. It's a perfectly valid way of saying it. It just, you, you never realize how weird some phrasing sounds until you hear it out loud. Anyway, so he says that the toys come to life, but they don't touch humans. And then I say, well, how do you know they can't touch you? And, and he says, wait, so, so they can? They can attack me? And I said, no, it's, I didn't mean it like that. I'm just wondering where you're getting your information. It's this very specific information you have. I want to know where you got it from. And uh, he has like this whole mythology that he's built up. I said, did you get this from Toy Story? What are we talking about? Let me know so we can, I can engage with you a little bit in this conversation. And I guess he just came up with it in his head and, and was immediately convinced of its validity. And at another point, I'm still trying to convince him. This went on for like a while, this conversation about, about the toys coming to life. And, and, uh, and, and he goes, and I say, well, they, no, they don't. I keep, keep trying to tell them they don't come to life. And he says, well, have you ever seen toys not come to life when you're sleeping? And I had to stop and think about that for a second. Have I seen toys not come to life when I'm sleeping? Uh, I said, no, I guess I haven't seen that. Well, you see, so you don't know. Anyway, so maybe he's right. Maybe they do come to life. I, I guess I really don't know. I just, my whole concept of reality broke down. All right, this is Melanie Wild says, I love it when the media takes your hilarious dry humor, so literal. Um, honestly, nobody could say conservatives aren't funny because Matt gets me rolling daily. Thanks, man. I don't know what you're talking about. What? There was no joking on yesterday's show, especially. It was one of my most serious shows. I don't even know what you're referring to. Um, Cameron says, this was hands down, without a doubt, the greatest opening monologue in admittedly the short history of podcasting. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and I would also say probably one of the most important monologues, if I do say so myself. Uh, Genevieve says, your rant about Starbucks baristas made me howl with laughter. My ex-best friend once yelled, I was serious about that too. So what are you guys laughing about everything for? These, everything was serious, especially the stuff about baristas. 
My ex-best friend once yelled at me driving in the middle of Chicago traffic, telling me her job as a Starbucks barista was a career that she plans to grow into. This was a response to me trying to help her find a job with her college degree that she had received over a year ago, a degree which was in, uh, you guessed it, photography. Needless to say, our friendship didn't last much longer after that. Well, I'm sure your friend was quite annoying, and so I, I wouldn't mourn the fact that she's gone. But I would say, like, I, I don't, I wouldn't uh, begrudge anyone or dis- dissuade or try to discourage anyone who is in a customer service job and says that they see it as a career. It can be, actually. Now, like, being a, you know, working the drive-thru at Starbucks is not in and itself a career. Hopefully, you're not doing that for 20 years. But if you see that as a stepping stone and you kind of want to stay in the, the customer service world, and you want to work up to being a manager, and then eventually you got your own, uh, you have your own location that you're running. You know, you work, you work your way up that way. I think that's perfectly admirable and noble, and that's a, that's a career path that many people follow. I guess that's great. Um, but that means that's all the more reason why, if you see it that way, then when you're there, you're going to be working as hard as you can, putting in the extra effort. You're not going to be recording TikToks complaining about your job. You're not going to be focusing on all the things you hate so much and trying to avoid, you know, getting mad when people. Uh, order complicated drinks that make you work harder because you're there and you see this as an opportunity. So I actually, I, you know, I encourage people to have that attitude, actually. SSG uh, Emeritus says, I saw a headline that read that you had a meltdown over the Little Mermaid. I laughed so hard at you having a meltdown. Your excellent response was a classic, responsible, knowledgeable version of a Matt Walsh meltdown. Good for you. I did read, there, there have been many headlines like that, actually, because the, the media is still talking about this, by the way. And now people are sending me, tick, so TikTok has gotten in on the action. Maybe we'll play some of those videos next week, I don't know, as we continue the mermaid conversation into, um, just indefinitely. But, so there, you know, there's more reporting on it. And yeah, that, that has seemed to be the most common characterization of our initial conversation about translucent mermaids, is that they're saying it was a meltdown. I had a meltdown about it. Because, yeah, everyone knows. Uh, this is what I, People know this about me. I, that's my personality. I'm overly emotional. I get very excited easily. Uh, overly enthusiastic. That's, I, I admit, that's one of my great, greatest flaws. Right now over at dailywire.com slash shop, they're uh, running an inflation reduction event in response to the Biden administration's feeble attempt to magically reduce inflation by spending more money. Use code 40 at checkout for 40% off Anything in the inflation reduction collection, including a lot of the Sweet Baby Gang's greatest hits and even my beloved magnum opus, Johnny the Walrus, is also there. Uh, once you're done stuffing your cart with sale items, you can head over to my swag shack and get the perfect companion to my book, which is the official Johnny the Walrus plushie. Uh, we're doing the, the Walrus plug yet again. We are. I thought uh, they might actually do a shop read for something mildly less traumatizing, like a shirt emblazoned with my bearded face on the body of an infant. Or, uh, you know what, actually, we should have a, we do need some kind of translucent mermaid shirt. Anyway, we'll talk about it. We don't have that yet. We'll, have to, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, I still don't have my own walrus. That's the point. But you, my sweet babies, can. So head over to dailywire.com shop to get yours today. Also, recently, Daily Wire was uh, CC'd on an email from a Harry Razor's customer who was canceling their subscription and switching to Jeremy's. This is what he wrote. Quote, Dear Harry's, I have used and enjoyed your razors for five years now and even have a personalized Harry's handle. However, I was disappointed to learn of the circumstances in which your company disassociated from the Daily Wire. As such, I am not giving any more of my money to you as I think Jeremy, jeremysrazors.com, 
could find more uses aligned with the values I hold dear. I will add that I am a resident of the UK, and Jeremy's does not currently ship outside of the USA. Therefore, I'm arranging to have my Jeremy subscription sent to my family in the USA, where it will then be sent at an additional cost to me. This is a small price I'm willing to pay to expressly support those who stand against woke bullying. Signed, King Charles III. Uh, no, this email was not written by Britain's new sovereign, but the understandably frustrated citizen who did was certainly right about one thing. Jeremy can find more uses for your money aligned with values that you hold dear. And frankly, razors are just the start. We enjoy receiving this email so much that we're encouraging you to do the same. When you subscribe to Jeremy's Razors, CC us on uh, your own breakup email with Harry's or Gillette, and maybe we'll read it on the show. So just send it to reviews at jeremysrazors.com. Stop giving your money to woke corporations that hate you. Give it to Jeremy instead. Go to jeremysrazors.com today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we check in with the fat community over at TikTok, a realm that we may call TikTok. That's actually my producer Sean's joke. Uh, now, as the host of the show, it's my God-given right to steal the joke without credit. I can steal any joke I hear around here because it's mine. That's the way it goes. But I've decided to forego that privilege and give credit where it's due in this case. So there it is, TikTok. Anyway, we'll start with one recent viral video from a fat activist, and then perhaps we'll continue down the TikTok rabbit hole uh, and see what else we may find. Here it is. I'm going to prove to you why white people are the reason I'm fat today. If white people didn't go looking for spices, then various sea routes to Indian subcontinent and Africa and other places of the world would not get discovered. And if they didn't get discovered, then East India Company would never come to Indian subcontinent. And if they didn't come, then the fertility of the land would not get destroyed because they forced us to cultivate tobacco and dyes and opioid, things like that, and that destroyed the fertility of my country. And then if that didn't happen, and if they didn't exploit and extract resources until my ancestors were left with nothing to eat, we wouldn't move to this grain-heavy, very little nutritious diet that we have today. Also, if white people didn't come to the Indian subcontinent, then my ancestors would not go through 50 small, medium, large famines in a period of 200 years. That's a lot. And in 1943, nearly 3 million people would not have died due to starvation and malnutrition. And if that didn't happen, then this entire place um, and the people of this place would not adapt to survive on lower calories. Okay, I didn't realize that was a 45-minute clip. Uh, but it's a fun game, I have to admit. It's like it's like the self-victimizing version of Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Just take some negative aspect of yourself that you don't want to take responsibility for and then find a way to cast the blame as far away from yourself as possible. I can do this too. You know, For instance, I tend to be impatient and at times ill-tempered, I admit. It's not my fault though. It can actually be traced directly back to Alexander the Great's invasion of Persia in 334 B.C. I'll need to do some research on Wikipedia to connect all the dots, but I'm sure there's a way to do it. Actually, in this woman's case, you might compare it more to a sort of, um, it's sort of like a, a butterfly effect, but for fatness. So a butterfly flaps its wings 700 miles away, sets off a chain of causation 
that eventually ends with this girl eating a cheeseburger. Although here, in a rather extraordinary feat of deflection, she has punted responsibility actually out of this century, halfway across the previous millennium. Imagine that the mental gymnastics required to be in the process of devouring like a Cinnabon while thinking to yourself, this is all Vasco da Gama's fault. Damn you, Vasco. Meanwhile, there is, as always, an obvious contradiction at work here. On the one hand, we're told that fat is beautiful, fat is good, fat is healthy, fat is desirable. On the other hand, it's also very important for us to believe that fat people are fat through no fault of their own. So it's like, this is good, but it's not my fault. Well, if it's beautiful and good, then why would you not want to take credit for it? In fact, if white people made this girl fat, then shouldn't she be thanking us, given that fat is beautiful? We made you beautiful. You're welcome. Which is it, is my question. You have to choose. Pick a lane. Either it's bad and it's not my fault, or it's good, in which case the blame game makes no sense. Let's watch the next one. Fat shaming and skinny shaming are the same. Actually, no, they're not. Fat people are denied jobs, proper medical care, health insurance, they're paid less, they don't have equal access to clothing, travel, many public spaces, even the body mass index, the way that it discriminates against women, especially women of color, it was created for and based around white men. Like fat phobia is literally rooted in anti-blackness, it's rooted in racism and sexism. Skinny shaming is not. How many times have you seen marketing campaigns that are labeled, get fat quick, finally add those stubborn 30 pounds? Show me where all the weight gain industries are. Show me all the damaging messages that say that skinny equals unworthy life or skinny equals ugly. When is the last time that you've been penalized financially when an aircraft seat had to be accommodated to your smaller body? When is the last time you've walked into a doctor's office and after they weighed you, stopped listening to what you were actually there for and told you to just gain weight because it will fix everything? Fat people endure all of that and more. Skinny people do not face employment discrimination or medical discrimination. The world was designed for you. Eat a burger is just not comparable to systemic abuse and oppression. I mean, she's absolutely right. You know, fat shaming and skinny shaming are not the same. Because if you're shaming somebody for being skinny, then you're shaming them for a healthy physique, provided that they aren't, you know, rail thin. If you're shaming them for being fat, you're shaming them for being in an unhealthy and destructive physical state. You really shouldn't be walking up to people and shaming them for their appearance in either case, but it is without question worse to shame a good thing than it is to shame a bad thing. But my favorite part of this clip is, is her list of oppressions and persecutions that fat people face. She says fat people don't have equal access to clothing, which is an interesting way of putting it. So if I gorge myself during Thanksgiving and put on five pounds in one weekend, I can then complain that I don't, I don't have equal access to my own pants anymore. Yet, Contrary to the way she phrases it, there is no law preventing fat people from wearing clothing. I mean, incidentally, this, I was, this is actually news that someone should probably share with Lizzo. It's like, you know, you can, you're allowed to wear clothes, just so you know. By the way, the reason there aren't advertisements telling people how to add pounds, she says, why are there any advert? There's no ads telling people to put on pounds. Well, the reason for that is that, number one, you don't want to add pounds, right? It's unhealthy. But also, nobody needs help doing that. Putting on weight is easy and fun and, and often delicious. You just make a tray of brownies. That's all it takes. There's no further assistance required. So that's why you don't find that. Let's check out one more. I'm going to be real with y'all. I am really sick and tired of skinny coming on this app and trying to compare fat phobia to getting called a door once. That's called body shaming, and it literally happens to every single person on the planet at least once. It's not a systemic issue. 
girl i went to my doctor when i got diagnosed with severe depression and she dead ass looked at me and said lose some weight and break up with your boyfriend i was in school today thinking about where i wanted to go for off-campus lunch and i started looking up restaurant menus and realized that i didn't want to linger on the tab too long in case somebody looked over at the fat girl's laptop seeing where she wanted to go for lunch and judging me for it i can't walk into a 7-eleven and order a slurpee and some skittles because i'm afraid that when i put them down on the counter like a skinny person could do with no problem somebody's gonna judge me for it i've applied to a job at a restaurant and heard somebody say how they're not gonna hire me because they think i'm fat enough to eat all the food i'm terrified to be seen eating in my car or eating alone y'all got insulted once and ran with it this is what the youth of today are spending their energy on this is what they're arguing these are the subjects they're discussing what's worse fat shaming or skinny shaming oh my god okay let's go through a few things here i would absolutely absolutely judge you if you were buying a Slurpee and Skittles at the same time. I mean, fat or skinny, if I see someone washing down Skittles with a Slurpee, yes, I'm going to make some judgments about that person. That's disgusting, and you would deserve to be judged for it. Absolutely. You deserve judgment. In fact, if someone walked up to you to your face and made fun of you for buying Slurpees and Skittles at the same time, you would deserve that too. It'd be good. It'd be a wake-up call for you. That's like an intervention. Guess what? You don't get to be free of the world's judgment. Here's a news flash for everybody watching right now. You don't get to be free of the world's judgment. You don't. Nobody does. You are being judged all the time. All the time. People look at us and observe our behavior and make judgments. That's just, Sometimes the judgments are bad. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're neutral. This is just what it means to live in a society among other rational creatures. You can accept that and move on with your life, or you can sit around crying about, I'm being judged. I'm being judged. Yes, you are. Okay, we've established that. Live your life now. Or just stay huddled in a corner in a fetal position. Stop judging me. Well, you've chosen the latter, I suppose. And now you're on TikTok. Like, I, I, can't, I can't even freebase pixie sticks behind the dumpster at 7-Eleven without being judged. Of course you can. Nor should such behavior be free of judgment. Also, you most certainly were not turned down for a job at a restaurant because the interviewer said you'd eat all the food. Okay, that, did, that just didn't happen. I, it absolutely 100% did not happen. Um, however, did a doctor actually tell you that the cure for depression is to break up with your loser boyfriend and shed a few pounds? I hope so, because that's actually fantastic advice. I wish more doctors would help their patients adjust their lifestyles before writing prescriptions. You had a good doctor who cared about your health, which is why I assume you never went back to him again. All in all, if these experiences, as you describe them, actually all happened and were upsetting to you, there is a solution. It's a solution totally within your power. You can lose weight. It won't be easy, but you can do it. It is possible. I know from experience that there is a correlation between diet, lifestyle, and weight. We all know this from experience. This is the point that the fat activists, the fativists, seem to always miss. You can't lie to the rest of us about this issue. You can't pretend that you have nothing to do with your own waistline. All of us have experienced putting on weight because we ate too much and didn't get enough exercise. All of us in the modern world have experienced that. We know that's how it works. We also know that it's difficult. It takes self-control to practice dietary discipline. And we know that's why you don't want to do it. Not because you're oppressed or the victim of white supremacy. It's just, it's hard. And you don't want to do something that's hard. We've all been there to one degree or another, which is why you would actually have our sympathy if you just said, I know I can get healthy, but it's really hard, and so I'm struggling. You could just say that. That's a statement I totally sympathize with. 
Because whether it's weight or something else, we all have things about ourselves that we don't like or we want to improve. You know, but but we have trouble improving those things because it's hard to it's, it's hard to improve something about yourself. Doesn't matter what it is, and we all have flaws. And so, if your flaw is that you tend to over overeat and you don't get enough exercise, and so you've put on weight, that's a flaw. It is a flaw. You're not the only one in the world with flaws. We all have them. And you could rightly point out that we all have flaws. That's true. But when you make your flaw into a cause, right, into a, a banner that you march under, into and and you want to you try to convince the world that your flaw is actually a virtue. Well, now you've made it an issue we have to talk about. And that's on you. If you would just admit that it's a flaw that you do have control over, then, then it's, a wholly, it's, it's an entirely different situation. You know, and, and all the, for the rest of us with our flaws, we have them not because, uh, and, and we, we have trouble solving them, not because we can't solve them or it's impossible or because it's all the fault of spice traders in the 1500s. We can control ourselves, but it's difficult, and we have trouble doing difficult things. Everyone does. That's why we call them difficult. That's something that we can all, as humans, relate to and sympathize with, and we can commiserate with each other about that. We can also support each other and help each other. But you can't really have anyone's support or anyone's help or even sympathy if you refuse to be accountable for your own choices. As long as you insist on blaming everything and everyone but yourself, you'll never get over the hurdle. You'll be stuck with the burden forever while trying to convince yourself that you're happy with it, but you know better you're not. And that is why these fat activists on TikTok are today, unfortunately, I must say, canceled on this flannel Friday, which, by the way, I can't believe I went the whole show without saying happy flannel Friday. Well, there it is. Hope you're wearing your own flannels as we move into the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you on uh, Monday. Godspeed.